This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, yesterday we learned that the hospital closures and cutbacks caused by staff shortages have hit the country's largest hospital in Ontario's largest health system. UHN issued an alert applying to the intensive care units at Toronto General Hospital. The affected areas are its cardiovascular, cardiac and medical surgical intensive care units. It's the latest sign of Ontario's continued healthcare staffing crisis with hospitals across the province forced to scale back or temporary clo- temporarily close emergency rooms and ICUs. Yesterday, we learned that 25 hospitals were affected last weekend. So uh, does that worry you? What do you think? Uh, and if you've had an experience where you had to go to a hospital in these circumstances, we certainly want to hear from you. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740. 4740. And we will be talking to a variety of stakeholders, starting with Dr. Kevin Smith, President and CEO of the University Health Network. Dr. Smith, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. It'd be always great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, uh, what is the situation in your ICUs? Sure. So, maybe I can just step back and talk a little bit about what is a critical care bed alert. And what we use a critical care bed alert for is to basically communicate internally that we're full or almost full. Sometimes we'll try to reserve one bed for the potential decline of an internal patient. But for our colleagues within the hospital to realize, please don't accept additional transfers that might require ICU care because we're full at the moment. With that critical care bed alert, we then work closely with other hospitals and a group called Critical, which is an agency in the province of Ontario, which helps best place transfers for critical care incidents, uh, those who would require ICU care, and that's exactly what occurred. So we've we've been on a critical care bed alert since uh, July the 22nd, and uh, obviously we continue to do our very best to ensure that our staffing ratios are as good as they can be. And uh, we worry not only about our patients, but also about the quality of work life and resilience of our staff. Would you consider this a crisis? Um, I know crisis is a word laden with lots of issues. It certainly feels like a crisis for the frontline staff. So, you know, what if our nurses feel it's a crisis? It's a crisis. Um, Do I feel like the system is imploding? I've heard people talk about, you know, really the system imploding. The system is challenged, not only here or across our country and across our world. This is a international trend. Um, what, we're not, what we haven't had to do, uh, unlike when we were at the peak of COVID, was dramatically scale back our, our scheduled care. And I would say when we got to a, a, a true crisis, we really have to stop what some refer to as elective. I prefer to call scheduled care. But, you know, we, we kind of have the perfect storm. It's August. Our staff need and deserve a break. They are getting their kids ready to go back to school. They've been working much too hard for much too long. We've got this new disease now incorporated into the system called COVID. Today, there are about 45 active patients in beds at UHN, which are 45 fewer beds available. Um, And of course, we have uh, significant numbers of personnel who are saying, I don't want to work in as acute an environment at this. I'm burnt out after two and a half years of working this hard. So maybe I don't want to leave healthcare, but I really need a break from these highest intensity environments. And um, of course, that, as I mentioned, is happening internationally. That that was going to be my next question. How much of this is a result of 
summer vacations, long weekend vacations. And I mean, I, I really believe that your staff need those breaks, but how much of that do you think will be alleviated when, when, you know, after Labor Day, say? Our, our toughest month for staffing every year is unquestionably August and, and around the holidays. So um, I'm hopeful that we'll see a slightly improved situation. I, I also know working with government and others that we're looking at what other um, opportunities might there be to a- attract more people back, potentially retired nurses and doctors and others. And how can we work uh, cooperatively with the College of Nurses, for example, You'll have heard some of my colleagues reference 26,000 nurses who are in Ontario who were foreign trained but have not yet been gained licensure. The college has a very tough job of trying to balance protecting the public, so ensuring that people they license actually are up to the standard of Ontario health care. But again, I think those are all areas where we are going to have to roll up our sleeves and think of new new and interesting ways to get more people into the professions quickly while doing so safely. Um, Yesterday, uh, the health minister spoke, um, and I'm wondering, uh, and the premier just spoke, and he said he's not going to repeal Bill 124, which is a a big irritant for nurses. Their salaries capped at 1%, but that it, it will expire. And my understanding is that there are negotiations with nurses that should be starting now or ongoing now. Um, do you know? Yes. Well, um, the Ontario Hospital Association, on behalf of the roughly 140 hospital corporations in Ontario, negotiates with the Ontario Nursing Association. And yes, um, I believe you're absolutely right that early in the new year, perhaps at the end of the, the fiscal year, um, March, uh, Bill 124 expires, and obviously between now and then, uh, ongoing negotiations between ONA and other unions will be occurring with the OHA on our behalf. Um, and obviously, we've, we've seen a number of other public sector unions talking not only about the challenge of staffing, but the pressures of inflation. So I have no doubt these will be challenging negotiation periods. Um, clearly, we do have to go back and really look at what is the appropriate expenditure, regardless of what level of government contributes, municipal, provincial, or federal, that's required to appropriately look after 15 million Ontarians? And you know as well as I, I think most patients and taxpayers no longer want the debate about who's paying what and who's paying enough, but are we collectively putting the right resources into healthcare so that we can Number one, have an appropriately sized system, which really means appropriately staffed system, a system that uses maximum scope of practice so the right people are delivering care, and efficiency so that we can look at if there are less expensive people who can extend the most expensive amongst us, that we're doing that uh, in a wise and judicious way. And last but certainly not least, um, are we meeting the needs and expectations of our patients? No. Big bill to fill. The, the unions that are talking about Bill 124 and the 1% cap, I mean, blue skying, if that was removed, uh, do you think that would that be some kind of short term solution? Is money the short term solution or not? You know what? My colleagues in ONA would be more expert than I on what, what they're seeing across the unions. I'll, I'll just give you a few across the country, rather, and province. I'll give you a couple of observations just for UHN. Um, we're, we're challenged to find people to staff within the collective agreement at time and a half. So that, you know, I, that's much more than 1%. Uh, so I, I think they, the belief that Bill 124, repealing Bill 124 alone would fix the staffing crisis, I, I personally don't see how that would occur. I welcome engaging with my colleagues at the Ontario Nursing Association, if they have to educate me if I've got that wrong. But I don't think alone that's going to produce more nurses or new nurses. The other thing I worry about in that one is I want to be really careful that we're not incenting people to do even more work when they've told us, I'm burnt out, I need a break, my mental health is suffering, and I'm had, I've had to consider whether I want to stay in, in healthcare or at least in acute environments in healthcare. Uh, but having said that, I also respect 
These are people who are struggling with the inflationary pressures, and they've kept our system afloat for two years. So very sympathetic to uh, what they're asking for in terms of compensation. But I also realize that um, I don't think there is a quick fix on this one. Money isn't our greatest problem for once in healthcare. Um, it will be. There's no doubt about that. If we're going to appropriately size the system, we have to appropriately staff the system. And really, staffing comes down to money and predictable full-time jobs for those who want them and making this really an attractive workplace again. How much do you think is that, I mean, doctors got big bumps that nurses are just feel like they're being badly treated? For sure. We hear lots of our nursing colleagues say um, we've been the glue that's held the system together during COVID and before. And remember, before COVID, we were operating at 112, 110%. So I think... um, we, we would all agree the um, a number of professions, nursing at the top of the list, have definitely been there. So have our PSW colleagues. So I, I know these will be challenging collective agreement negotiations. And um, I think, again, we'll be looking at the international trends, what's happening across the country. Ontario usually ends up in a very competitive space, uh, compensation-wise, in terms of negotiations. We flip-flop between negotiations of being the first or second best payer in the country. Um, so I, I have every confidence that this one will be challenging, but but very important negotiation. Uh, we only but, have a few seconds left, but is there any one thing that you would like to see the government do right away to help you out? Um, you know what? I think some of the things, it's, it's all about flow, Libby. So it really is are we maximizing where patients uh, can best be served? So I think, again, looking at our our alternate level of care numbers. So in that model, we have a whole number of patients who are in acute care environments that could better be served and no longer acutely ill, but not necessarily somewhere to go. Again, that probably relates to um, uh, staffing as well. Uh, Secondly, I think uh, also looking at how we expand and support home care in a way that allows uh, appropriate early discharge and really good supports at home. Um, I'm a fan of models of integrated care where acute care teams and home care teams are merged into one so we can really make that that care experience great and and extend the scope of practice for others. And last but certainly not least, clearly government and, and the field working with the colleges to get more appropriate people licensed and immigration working with the federal government to attract people who can immediately gain licensure and making that process much easier than it is today. Good luck with their immigration backlogs. I know, it's a challenge. Dr. Kevin Smith, thank you very much. Thank you, as always, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye now. Okay, now let's bring in Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Helen Winter, a registered nurse working in the emergency department of a downtown Toronto hospital. Uh, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having us back. Um, Doris, uh, I, I don't know if you were listening to all of what Dr. Smith had to say. He said it, it, it's a big challenge. Uh, he hesitated to call it a crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that it is a crisis. I think I agree with about everything that uh, Dr. Smith, Kevin said. Uh, he and I have discussed also the matter. Uh, what I don't agree is that September will be better. I do not think September will be better. I do not agree on waiting bill, with Bill 124 till March or November or anything. I think August 8th, the Premier should announce that that bill is gone. Uh, it's not only the bill that will help, but the bill, as you have heard us say before, is a red flag for nurses that they are not valued. Uh, it's easy for Dr. Smith to say that uh, money is not all. I agree, money is not all. Every nurse will tell you that it's money and workloads. Money because they need to, they cannot have a decrease of almost 7% uh, of compensation at the time that their workloads have been heavier than ever and, and workloads because they want to deliver outstanding care and they're unable under the conditions today. Uh, before we move to Helen, Doris, are negotiations underway right now? 
my understanding is that it's not at all. Um, and, uh, and, and they ought to be, and they should be speed up. And uh, August 8th, if they announce that the bill is gone or that the negotiations can start around the bill uh, in September, really, it needs to happen speedily. It cannot wait till the new year. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. We don't know what will come in the fall in terms of another variant, in terms of, you know, all the other conditions that are coming our way, let alone the regular workloads uh, related to backlogs of surgeries that continue to be there, etc. Helen Winter, uh, tell us about your experience. What's it like for you working in these circumstances? Well, I just finished working six days straight, so <laughs> six 12-hour shifts, because that's what it takes to get the bills paid now. Uh, it is disgusting. I don't know what is going to be called a crisis. We're so far beyond a crisis. Uh, what's it going to take? I have no idea. If this isn't a crisis, then then I can only look at horror movies to, to think of what would constitute a crisis. People are dying. They're, they're dying from lack of care. They're dying because we don't have the resources. There was one point yesterday where I, w- I suddenly realized I am doing the job of six people. How many patients do you, uh, what department do you work in? You work in the Emerge. Emerge, So I'm frontline. I am the brightest colors of the human tapestry and the human circus right in front of me, which is what I enjoy about the job. But more and more, the tragedies that are unfolding are just unconscionable. We, We cannot manage. Money is a start. I'm full pay RN. After taxes, I take home $36 an hour. I could make more waitressing a brunch shift at a diner. Hmm. It's disgusting. People don't realize what nurses do. We are highly specialized health professionals. We are the eyes and ears of the doctors. We carry out what the doctor orders, and we do our own assessments, and we work under medical directives. We function together. We're a tight team, but we cannot go on. The suffering we we see is unconscionable and unnecessary. I no longer think of anybody who dies in the hospital. I no longer think when it's a when it's an institutionally uh, influenced death. I see it now as a political murder because that is what hap- is what is happening, and I don't mind using those words. Uh, Doris, uh, one of the things that was cited was ALC, alternate level of care patients, uh, kind of in beds. I mean, this is a very long-standing problem. Uh, has it gotten worse? Uh, it's interesting that you're asking, uh, Lily, because as we are speaking, you and I am sitting in an office that was lent to me by Minister Calandra. I just met with him for an hour. We had an excellent meeting. Oh, good. Uh, an excellent meeting, and I am very hopeful that solutions will be put in place. Things have not gotten better at this point, and I'm hugely concerned that because of the challenges of, again, acute care, ICUs, etc., that long-term care, again, will suffer the consequences. I said that to Minister Calandra. We need to fix long-term care. Long-term care needs to be part of the system of care. Like also uh, Kevin said, we need to fix home care so patients can be discharged from surgeries, etc., safely home. But here, my colleague, Helen, that just spoke with you, you cannot retain, and the key to recruitment is retention. We will not retain RNs, which is what you need in ICUs, in step-down units, in emergency rooms, etc. We need RNs and RPNs in long-term care. Yes, we have more PSWs, and that's wonderful. But without RNs, the RPNs, and the nurse practitioners, the system will continue to collapse in front of us. And I want to echo Helen. People are dying already. I mean, I don't, I didn't hear Kevin comment on the issue that three of the ICUs are being um, shrink, really. Beds are being they're, closed because there is not enough RNs there. RNs are the ones that work there. And no, it's not only because of vacation. People are moving from hospital to agency work, 
and Kevin says they cannot get people a time and a half, but they're taking every single day people are from agencies. In fact, they have their own app that they created. So, you know, these things are happening in front of our eyes, and it's not okay. We're willing but, to pay agencies a lot more than we're willing to pay our permanent full-time nurses. Well, it's it's different people deciding to make those expenditures, isn't it? Well, it's the same budget, though, darling. It's the same budget. It comes from taxpayers. It's all public funding. So treat first our full-time employees the way they deserve uh, the expertise that Helen and other agents that are the in and the out of those units provide is unparalleled to any other staff that will come for one shift. Okay. Um, again, everybody seems to agree that money alone won't solve the problem. But so the IN is the second piece. You have heard me leave speak about IN. And again, I spoke about that with Minister Calandra, with Minister Jones, and with others. We need to fast track, and Kevin spoke about that too. We need to fast track the internationally educated nurses, 26,000 in Ontario. 14,000 of those are RNs. The other 12,000 are RPNs. Fast track. We need them in long-term care. We need them in hospital care. We need them in, in uh, home care. We need them everywhere. And then, and then when we fast track them, then offer to nurses careers for nurses in Ontario that they can ladder. They can move from PSW to RPN, from RPN to RN, from RN to NP, paid by the province and return of service in return. Meaning, if you get paid the two years to do a master's or to do the nurse practitioner or to do from RPN to RN, reimbursement for the two years if you stay in Ontario. And we will keep them here because we will build careers for nurses here and we will treat nurses, RNs, RPNs, and LPs the way they actually need to be treated with respect, with the right remuneration, and with career incentives to stay here because nurses want to stay here and nurses want workloads that allow them to provide outstanding care and not to leave frustrated every shift and exhausted to the living. Uh, Doris, did you say you met with Minister Jones? When? Uh, Minister Jones called me. We had a great conversation, and we are also going to meet, and I have met with other people in high-level positions at the civil servants, and I just came out of a meeting with Minister Calandra that invited me to a meeting again. We need to all work together, but the speed of working together really needs to fasten. Okay, we let cannot- me, let me, sorry, let me just, so would you say then, I mean, we heard from Minister Jones and today from the Premier and they're saying, hey, we're doing everything we can. Hey, this is situation exists all over the country and all over the world. So are they doing everything no. they can? I mean, you just came out of a meeting. How, how do you view that? It, it is a national problem. It is a national problem, but only Ontario has built 124. Nobody else in this world, nobody, in fact, I'm sorry to say this to the Premier and whoever else is saying, nobody in their right mind will keep Bill 124 living in the midst of an inflation of almost 8% and a group of of mainly women, because police are exempted, as you know, firefighters, doctors, etc., that have given their life to this province. That's why they're leaving to Texas, to Alberta, to agencies and to other places. Not because they don't want to serve our patients in Ontario, and I will let Ellen speak about that, because she's in the front lines and she's giving her life for patients in Ontario. I can tell you that, like, the idea that he says that he's doing everything he can, it led us propaganda at its finest. Bill 124 essentially represents a lack of hope. There's no way. There's no way we can ever move forward as long as that bill's in place. Even in 2020, before this huge crisis got worse, Ontario already had the lowest per capita nurse-to-patient ratio and it's now it's now far worse. Um, we're one of the the most challenged provinces for nurses. And why would I stay? Why would I stay when there's no hope? Uh, it is such an insult. The five thousand dollar bonus 
that was taxed, we took home like about 50% of that. And we were told the lesson is, see, why would you want to raise? It's all going to tax. It's an insult. We can't move forward as long as we have this bill. You're doing nothing if you're just talking, opening beds that, again, will cause a further crisis with no one to staff. You got it. You have to support the people of Ontario, and you do that through supporting nurses. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Elizabeth in Toronto. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. I, I had a question. I think that nurse said that after taxes, she takes home $36 an hour. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, she did say that. Okay, what about the people living on $15 an hour before taxes? I, I feel sorry for the nurses and doctors. I think what they're going through is terrible. I wouldn't want to do it, and I'm glad that they're doing it. But some of it has to be about the money, or they wouldn't, like $36 an hour? I never made $36 an hour. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're having very difficult and very specialized jobs. I mean, you can't... I understand that, but I, I mean... There are people living on $15 an hour before taxes. Okay, Elizabeth, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, I feel badly for people living on $15 an hour, but, uh, I don't think it's relevant to what a highly trained and stressed out nurse makes. Um, I'm looking at the clock. We are almost out of time. Uh, so, the conclusion that I'm, I'm drawing from what you women are telling me is that, uh, right now it comes down to Bill 24. Helen, is that it? It's, that's a start. That's a start. No reform can happen until we're able to be, be appropriately paid. And that is impossible under Bill 124. And I know most people will hear that and think, oh, my taxes will go up. However, they don't realize that I am standing beside nurses who are working for private agencies who are taking home two or three times what union nurses are taking home. And the the system has no problem with paying them. That's privatization. And that seems to be the goal here. It Doris? starts with Bill 124. Doris? Yeah, I think, I think I, I hear, first of all, the point that uh, moving nurses to agency work is a form of privatization, and I would agree with that 100%. And maybe that's the goal, and we better be watchful, because then only the ones that can pay will have the care at home, especially, uh, will be the case, but also in hospitals. But in addition to Bill 124, and that is the retention tool, is the bringing more nurses so workloads are better. And that's where you have internationally educated nurses that need to be fast-tracked, that are ready to work here. That's where you have also the increased appetite for nursing still to this day, 35% increase for the RN programs, give the money to the universities and the colleges so we can uptake because colleges and universities are willing to take additional students there are many solutions, but Libby and Helen, they all need to be put at once and they need to be put now because if not September and the coming, the fall and the winter will be horrific. Okay. Thank you very much, Helen Winter and Dr. Doris Greenspoon. Appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having us. Thanks to, to speak with you, Helen. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, a disturbing rise in hate crimes amid the pandemic. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Hate crimes are on the rise in Canada amid the COVID-19 pandemic. A new report by Statistics Canada showed that 3,360 hate crimes were reported by police last year. That's a 27% increase compared with 2020 and a 72% jump over the span of two years. The Jewish community faces the most amount of hate crimes compared to other religious groups, seeing a 47% increase, and the Muslim community remains a target. So what is behind this? Some people are saying it's the pandemic. People are cooped up. Some are saying that there's an increase in these crimes being reported. 
What do you think? Uh, it's pretty sickening, frankly. Uh, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Jamie Kersner-Roberts, Director of Policy at the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, and Senator, Canadian Senator Salma Atulajan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Thank for you. having me. Uh, let's begin with Jamie. Uh, any surprise seeing these numbers? You know, look, we're very, we were very unhappy to see these numbers yesterday. Uh, a 47% increase in heat crimes targeting, targeting Jews. Obviously, this is uh, very worrisome. Um, but uh, sadly, it, it is not surprising. I mean, we are receiving calls here on a daily basis of just incredibly concerning incidents that have been taking place. Um, since school started uh, last September, we've received on average one call from a parent here in Toronto every single day uh, talking about how their, their child was targeted by a hate incident. And many of these, uh, unfortunately, uh, become violent in nature. So, um, very, very tough news, but not a surprise to us. Uh, we know that we are living in a moment of dramatically increasing anti-Semitism. Senator Atulajan, um, what have you been finding in terms of anti-Muslim hate? For us too, uh, the numbers are not surprising. In fact, I, I think they're higher. I find that um, some in the Muslim community are still not reporting hate crimes. There's that fear in the Muslim community, and I and I'm sure the numbers are much um, higher than than what we heard. And uh, why why would they be afraid to report this? It's just this um, atmosphere of uh, fear, and I've had conversations with uh, you know um, within people within the community, and we say you know well this happened and this happened, and they don't perceive it as a as a hate crime, and they don't. Um, it's almost that notion of you know. Let, well, let's keep quiet. You know, let's. You don't want to rock the boat. The Muslim community, uh, for some time now, has been living in fear. And um, you know, but the the thing that I can say is that there are people within the community who are finding their voices, who are coming out and speaking and saying, um, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. And you know, and and the thing I have to say is that there are a few things that need to change in the conversations that we're having around Islamophobia and hate crimes. Um, for both of you, uh, are are most of these incidents, crimes, <clears throat> excuse me, targeted against uh, people who are visibly religious? Whether, <clears throat> excuse me, whether they're wearing a kippah or a hijab, is that something you're finding? Jamie? Um, in the case of um, hate and motivated crimes targeting the Jewish community, um, I would not say that most of them are targeting um, Jews that are wearing religious garments, you could say. Um, obviously, this is a part, part of, you know, some, some part of it, but um, it, it, these crimes are not only targeting religious Jews. And you know, and in fact, I, you know, I take issue with the way that um, um, Statistics Canada even categorizes anti-Semitic hate crimes because um, they, by categorizing them as a religious crimes, it's leaving that impression. Um, in fact, uh, very secular Jews, non-religious Jews um, are, are, are targeted as well. Um, and we've seen that every single day uh, in, in the school system. Um, and we are seeing... Uh, both neo-Nazi groups as well as extremist groups on the other side of the spectrum um, targeting Jews completely regardless to their level of re religiosity um, every day. Senator Tulajan, how much of this is because of a vast amount of hate online that is, I guess, anonymous? Um, how much would you attribute to that? Well, quite a bit of it is some of the conversations that we're having these days. A few years ago, those would have not been ex uh, acceptable. And, uh, you know, um, like I said, we need to be having conversations around, you know, the hate crimes. 
And we we keep hearing that hate crimes are on the rise and Islamophobia will be mentioned as a byline. You know, when we look at hate crimes on this macro scale without engaging in the intricacies of Islamophobia itself, we're doing a disservice to the study. You know, and, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying let's engage with uh, Islamophobic rhetoric. That rhetoric is dangerous and has no place in the Canadian context. But we need to engage with factors that are leading to specific rises in Islamophobia. And it's important to consider what exactly is driving this, you know, this Islamophobic uh, incidents. And, and what do you say is driving it? Well, you know, we need to focus less on the attention on hate crimes and more on the systemic issues that are driving it. Every time there's a violent act of hate, many people will come out and say, not again. And after that, there's silence. Um, you know, we hear um, Islamophobic rhetoric that we know inflame and lead to these acts of hate, but yet nothing is done about it. And, you know, I'm sure you're aware of a recent uh, incident where a, a certain individual who's a known racist and Islamophobe stood publicly in uh, Dundas Square and said that Muslims and Sikhs should be killed. And yet nothing was done against him. I mean, he said it, uh, you know, while recording um, a a video which was put out on YouTube. So, you know, if we're going to let things like that pass, uh, those conversations, we really need to, you know, and this happened exactly a year after that Muslim family, the Afzal family was killed in London for being Muslim. You know, we we did, people did come out and uh, condemn this bigot statement. But there has been no repercussions, and to this day, he has not been charged. What is the message that we are sending to Canadian, uh, to it the Canadian is, public? Jamie, we are allowing people to publicly call for murders of an entire uh, religious group. Uh, Jamie, are are the the laws and the the prosecution of hate crimes strong enough? I mean, we also had a, a big, huge conference on anti-Semitism, and yet we see this increase. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have to agree with the senator here that, um, you know, when tragic incidents do happen, you know, people say, uh, speak out and say never again. But, you know, we are, you know, the structural changes uh, are too slow. Um, I I do think that we need changes to our, our justice system um, to address those that are are. are Spreading hate, promoting hatred, um, and you know the fact. The fact of the matter is, you know, we we had a man here in Toronto who um, was some type of neo-Nazi supporter. He had a big uh, tattoo or drawing of a swastika on his chest. His mo was to walk around without a shirt on and to assault uh, random Jews. Uh, he did uh, on the street and uh, including off, uh, a number of cases, uh, women, including in one case, a woman with a, a baby. Um, and, uh, and he was targeting Jews and, uh, you know, the, the police pick, pick, pick him up. They press charges and release him an hour later. Um, he, you know, the, the, the punishments are not very strong. There's really no, um, there's really nothing in place in our justice system to pr- protect our communities from this. Um, you know, you, you don't get that much of a, of, you know, a prison sentence or anything for simply beating someone up on the street. Um, so maybe he spends um, 10 days in jail and then he's out again and then he's committing again. I mean, our, our justice system is, uh, is in many ways, uh, you know, not able to handle people who are you know, very devoted to illiberal uh, ideas, ideas that um, that they have some right to inflict um, hatred, discrimination, and violence on people because they're a group that they that they disagree with. And and I, I would say overall, our, our institutions are are not handling that well. Not our justice system, not our schools not our universities, um, and, or, nor many other institutions in our society. We are too often giving these kinds of um, incidents a pass. And, and unfortunately, this is what is contributing in, in part to, to the dramatic increase in, in assault and other kinds of incidents that are, are hate-motivated. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Helen in Toronto. Hello, Helen. Hi, Libby. Um, there are, I think, uh, these racist incidents, both Islamic and Jewish, 
are very underreported. A lot of people are afraid to report because um, they may be noticed. And then, you know, what isn't reported is as bad as what is. There was recently a, um, what do you call it, a Zoom broadcast, which showed what was happening and how the media was also part of it. And it showed specific places where Trump had said uh, the Proud Boys and the anti-racists and all the others were actually very good people. And I don't think uh, the people who are doing this would ever forget something like that, because after all, a head of state says they're good people, um, which only gives them more, should we say, power or will to do these things. Oh, well, that was uh, the notorious Charlottesville. Thanks very much, Helen. Uh, I am looking at the clock. We're uh, out of time. I'm going to give you 20 seconds each, starting with Senator Atala. Thank you so much, Libby. So, I, you know, as chair of the Human Rights Committee, we're currently conducting a study on Islamophobia, and we will be traveling, and we're going, I'm hoping that this can be the start of a much larger conversation and that we can finally see some action, because at the end of it, we will have some recommendations for the government. And Jamie? Yeah, you know, in this moment of, uh, of, of dramatically increasing anti-Semitism, which is too often, um, you know, expressed in, in illegal, in criminal, in violent ways, you know, we're really asking, um, you know, average everyday Canadians to do what they can uh, in their day-to-day life to speak out against hate, this kind of hatred, uh, race-based hatred, ethnic-based hatred, um, and because and and not to be bystanders. Okay. Um, at the end of the day, this is this is uh, what is going to change things. Okay. Thank you so much, Senator Salma Atulajan and Jamie Kersner Roberts. Thank bye. you, Libby. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank well, you. Bye bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, you know, in our first segment, we were talking about nurses and pay caps, but. With the huge inflation we're all experiencing, uh, what are people going to be asking for and receiving in terms of salary hikes? We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. All of us are feeling the pinch of high inflation, which recently hit 8.9%. Will salaries keep up? So the average annual increase of seven major union wage settlements in March and April was 3.1%, and that is almost double the average pace of pay increase at pay increases between March 2020 and January 2022. Uh, it doesn't cover inflation at the current rate. The Public Service Alliance of Canada, which represents 120,000 workers or about a third of federal employees, is demanding a pay hike of 4.5% per year. The union representing education workers has just called for an 11% hike. And what about people who work in the private sector who are not unionized. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And of course, the big question is, is all of this just a recipe for even higher inflation? Now I'm joined by Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Hi, Rocco. Hey, Libby. How are you doing today? Fine. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for uh, shining a light on this issue. Well, I, I'm sure that most employers understand that given that we're in the midst of a big labor shortage and huge inflation, that they're, they're going to have to pay their people more. Well, that's true in a lot of, in a lot of sectors, but we're already seeing, for instance, technology that was a, a high flyer for many quarters. Um, you've, you've seen, uh, slowdowns and you had Shopify, for instance, announcing a 10%, um, cut in their, uh, workforce as interest rates are being raised to, um, 
to basically uh, slow uh, inflation and slow economic activity, the danger is if you go too far too fast, does it throw things into recession? How long will the inflation numbers last? There's no question there are up rounds um, in many sectors because, as you say, there are labor shortages. When we um, uh, survey our members, 62% uh, are pointing to, um, to labor shortages, but they also want to avoid locking in long-term deals uh, if, in fact, things turn. So what I expect to see is a push not so much uh, to uh, still uh, a push to hire, uh, but but trying to do them for shorter terms. Right. Uh, I know that some companies also, uh, in an attempt to avoid locking things in, you know, they may go with bonuses, which are one-time things instead of uh, percentage pay hikes. Is that something for, you're seeing? For sure, we're seeing. We're seeing a fair bit of that because if you if you build in on a permanent basis um, increases, and as you said, the fear is and, and why the Bank of Canada is is worried and is increasing rates is you don't want to create what they call a, a wage spiral where you see inflation go up, so wages go up, but then that affects the cost of everything. And unless there's significant productivity gains. Uh, then, then the increases don't uh, don't sustain themselves, right? Because they simply add to costs, uh, and so you end up on this on this treadmill that we saw uh, in the uh, in the seventies during the last uh, period of uh, of pronounced and prolonged uh, inflation to what was referred to as stagflation because we weren't seeing the productivity increases. When you have those, then then not only can you pay people more, uh, but then that doesn't have a, an impact on increasing the price of everything. I'm going to give the numbers out again, people. Uh, I'd like to know from you, what do you think is a fair increase in the light of inflation that we have been experiencing. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Rocco Rossi from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And Rocco, do you have a sense from your members about what they think they will have to pay to keep their people, maybe to hire new ones? Again, you're seeing a wide range um depending on the sector and the size and capability of the of the firm you're seeing um, you know you're seeing players like the the big banks uh, moving uh, their minimum scales uh, well ahead of where uh, technical minimum wage uh, is uh, because they needed to keep uh, full staff. Uh, and that will continue, and they clearly have the capacity. It's a lot more difficult for the small and medium-sized players who don't have the same pricing power and ability to simply whatever extra they have to pay is charging uh, more, and so that ends up making their uh, their businesses less uh, and less economical, and after the stresses and strains that they've they've faced uh, over the last two and a half years, along with everybody else, but, but particularly in their, in their cases, very often having to shut down, having to take on additional uh, debt, uh, they're less able uh, to build in, particularly uh, built-in increases versus, as you suggested, uh, one-time uh, payments to try to assist in what everyone sees as a difficult time. Yeah, I think the banks uh, are giving increases in the four percent range. Am I right? Uh, that that seems to be the um, that seems to be the case currently. Yes. And um, 
On the other hand, uh, we've also heard stories about what the greedflation, that there are some players like big groceries who've raised prices more than they, quote, had to for to cover their increased costs. Well, you you do have to be uh, you do have to be careful uh, with that. Uh, there may well be individual uh, cases, but um, I I haven't seen uh, sort of systemic uh, examples of uh, of that. Uh, so, uh, what are you thinking? I mean, do you think that that the rises in interest rates will kind of put the brakes on this. Uh, you, do you have any sense of where this might land, Rocco? Well, we're already seeing, you're seeing that technically the U.S., which is our major uh, trading partner and, and therefore has a, has a big outsized effect on our economy over time, technically uh, have already hit a recession. They've been uh, two quarters of, of negative growth, which is the, the definition. Um, but your guess is as good as mine because, you know, remember for some time people were saying inflation was going to be quote unquote transitory. Clearly it's lasted far longer. And so people thought, well, we could increase rates a little bit and this would have an effect. Uh, and it's had some effect. Uh, you saw for instance, a story uh, just yesterday and today about you know ten thousand condos in the Greater Toronto area. The construction on those being slowed uh, because um, uh, because of the impact on demand as the interest rates um, have increased. So they the bank has to be extremely careful that what it does is uh, the, the so-called soft uh, soft landing, which, um, you know, historically has never happened. Um, so uh, you, 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 want to, you want to be wary uh, that it goes too far too fast. And if you lock in uh, rates and then go into a recession, um, it's very difficult to then reduce at that point, and then what you end up having to do is is reduce headcount in order to uh, in order to drop your costs, and that that doesn't benefit anyone. Okay, I'm going to take a very quick call from Barbara. Can you uh, talk in 20 seconds because we're almost out of time? Yes, uh, I guess I didn't hear the health sector when the unions were uh, requesting raises. We're still capped at 1%, and uh, we are burnt out. And that's really all I can tell you is that we are burnt out. And Okay, thank you yeah. for that, Barbara. I'm looking at the clock, Rocco. We're out of time. Thank you very much. I'm sure uh, this topic will be uh, coming up again. Thanks, Rocco. Thanks so much. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.